If a woman's, you know, kind of focused, they're like, oh, she's such a bitch. And if, if a man does it, he's a genius. Yes. He's an artist. And so there is a real double standard. If I asked you how many subscriptions you have, would you be able to list all of them and how much you're paying? If you would have asked me this question before I started using Rocket Money, I would have said yes. But let me tell you, I would have been so wrong. I can't believe how many I had and all the money I was wasting. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has helped save its members an average of $720 a year with over 500 million in canceled subscriptions. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. That's rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. Rocketmoney.com slash Wondery. I'm Tina Brown, and you're listening to TBD. Here's a big, big truth about producer Bruna Papandrea. She doesn't just lament gender inequality and pay disparity in Hollywood. She's actively changing the game by championing female-centric projects with women writers, directors, and actors. In 2012, the Australian-born Papandrea partnered with Reese Witherspoon to form a production company, Pacific Standard, with that feminist mission. Their first film, Wild, was based on Cheryl Strayed's best-selling memoir and starred Witherspoon as the author herself. It was immediately followed up by the movie version of Gone Girl, adapted from Gillian Flynn's dark marital thriller. And in 2017, in their last project before the power duo parted ways, they produced the Emmy Award-winning Big Little Lies on HBO, starring Witherspoon and a murderous row of actresses, including fellow Aussie Nicole Kidman, Laura Dern, Shailene Woodley, and Zoe Kravitz. Kidman won an Emmy and a Golden Globe for playing a wife who struggles to leave her abusive husband, Perry. Come on. Is it any wonder that it was him? The boys have never seen anything. You don't know that. And if they haven't seen it, they've heard it. They know what their father does to their mother. We, uh, can, we, uh, can we talk about it? You're never going to change, you know. That. I am going to change. Jesus, open the fucking door, Perry. Open the we fucking door. We talk to the teachers together. Open the door. Mother and father, husband and wife. The acclaimed miniseries was so popular that HBO ordered a second season, premiering in June. How can Papandrea and company possibly top season one of Big Little Lies? By adding the almighty Meryl Streep to the cast. She plays Perry's mother, who comes to town seeking answers about her son's death. But of course, she comes up against secrets and lies, big and small. Bruna Papandrea, welcome to TBD. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Big Little Lies, season two. It's upon us. The torture's wait is over. How hard, Bruna, was it to reassemble this amazing gallery of actresses in the wake of such an enormous hit in season one? It was one of those things that... You know, if you'd said to me at the beginning of that process, is it going to happen? I would have been absolutely it's never going to happen because so many things had to fall into place. So I kind of, you know, I was very relaxed about it. I think Nicole and, and Pesari, her producing partner, and I were like, well, let's see if Leanne Moriarty's interested in writing another story. Leanne Moriarty, she's the writer of the original novel of Big Little Lives. Yes, Leanne Moriarty's an Australian, you know, very successful novelist. So that was number one flew to Australia, spoke to her about it. 
And it seems she was interested in kind of just writing a, you know, an outline for what a potential second season would be. But then you had to get David Kelly to also get excited about doing it again. And you know, he's a busy guy. He's got lots on his plate. But um, we spoke to him and he was interested. And you know, at that point, you had to see if all of the other actors were interested in kind of engaging. And with every step that I was convinced it would not happen, people said yes. You know, every part. So it was, you know, by the time we were standing on set, I must say I had that thing of like, I just kept kind of pinching myself going, I cannot believe this happened. Well, because, I mean, reconciling the schedules alone Yeah, exactly. So that was a massive thing. But I did know it had to happen within a window. One, so that, you know, the, the first season was still kind of very firmly in people's minds. And two, because the kids were getting older, you know, and kids grow fast. So it really had to be within a certain window. Okay, so to dial up the drama, you've added Meryl Streep as the mother of Perry, the abusive husband of Nicole Kidman. She's extraordinary in this. Uh, and I understand that she signed on without even seeing the script. That's not 100% true, I don't think. I'm. Tr- <laughs> <laughs> That's the myth. Uh, no, it might be the myth. The great story behind this is, you know, Leanne Moriarty kind of famously dares us to kind of, you know, reach a bar. And so I remember when we were trying to convince her to write a second season story, she had an idea for a Mary Louise character. And she That's Meryl Streep. That's Meryl Streep's character. And she said, Okay, well now I've written it and now you have to go get me Meryl Streep. <laughs> and then obviously Nicole and Reese both had, you know, relationships with Meryl and obviously, you know, it was in the kind of ether. There was a lot of, you know, connections. How did she to build that. that character? I mean, how faithful is Meryl's portrayal of uh, of Perry's mom to what Leon wrote? I think it's faithful, but I, but I also think, you know, it could have gone various ways. And I think Meryl brings, you know, her own thing to it. Sort of she deadly, comes it's with, a deadly strangeness that she brings. It's a deadly strangeness, yeah. yeah. And, you know, is she friend? Is she foe? You, you know, I think that's the big question of the season. Yeah. And she's just wonderful. You she know? is. She's yeah. so incredibly unsettling. Yeah. Um, I think it's the best performance she, uh, I've seen her in for several years, actually. Uh, what I also adore, of course, and I think everybody does in this whole show, is that these women depict such sort of ferocious motherhood. I mean, it's really ferocious the way they mother their kids, the competitive birthday parties, the confrontations with teachers, the dramas at school pickups, not to mention, of course, what happens at the school fundraisers. Here's some of that action. Um, would you happen to have Jean's number? I really want to give her a call. Oh, you are so sweet. But tomorrow, there's a bunch of us that are all driving to San Jose for Disney on Ice. Uh, well, I, I just, I thought... Well, maybe we could swing by afterwards. How late will the party be going until? Three o'clock? No, we won't be back by then. But there's got to be something we can do, right? If only there was. Sorry, were. Subjective tense as it's contrary to fact. Okay, how about this? Chloe and the others come to the party, big smiles on their faces, right? And after I arrange a... A great sleepover weekend trip to Disneyland. All expense paid, VIP passes, the works, backstage passes to Frozen. <sighs> yeah, it's not gonna work. I'll even get Snow White to sit on your husband's face. Maybe Dumbo can take a squat on yours. I have to say that when I read about the college admissions scandal, I immediately thought <laughs> that Reese Witherspoon and Laura Dern would have been the first offenders in this in this show. Uh, I'm told that David E. Kelly, who wrote the script, drew upon what he and his wife, Michelle Pfeiffer, witnessed at their own kids' school. Is that true? Yeah, I think they had certainly experienced that very kind of Californian private school. 
Um, so he he definitely had access to, I think, some memories. And a lot of us had young children at the time that this show was being made and we're going through that admissions process ourselves. Yeah. It's hysterical and we all see it. I mean, it's also, I think, quite salutary for people to see what this mothering really looks like. I mean, it is so out of control and privileged and so forth. Yeah. Um, did that attract you a lot, that material? Yeah, I mean, I I really originally for me, it was about friendship and community and, you know, themes that I felt needed more deeply exploring amongst groups of women. But then, of course, I had just become a mother of twins myself. And so I was fascinated by how polarizing conversations around motherhood were, particularly, you know, in this area in California that I was living in. Uh, In fact, in the second season, you'll see we touch on some college stuff. And um, I really do think David Kelly has a little bit of a sixth sense, you know, pre pre what happens, um, you know, and it's not really, it's not too difficult for me to see how that kind of helicopter parenting and that pressure, even at the elementary school phase, leads to, you know, that kind of those desperate measures that, you know, some of these women took in this college scandal. Absolutely, which of course ruins their kids' lives, actually. I mean, the series also does something even more important than any of the things we're talking about is it really unflinchingly depicts what domestic abuse looks like inside a very complex marriage and and where there's also love and regret, which I think is obviously what is so new, in a sense, about the Nicole Kidman character. Um, Tell me about the sort of depiction of that character and did it unleash a lot of response from women who are supposedly women who have perfect lives and so on, but actually are like the Kidman character living you know, with a terrible secret. Yes. Yeah, it did unleash a lot of response. And I think both in in the bigger world and obviously I know um, all of the women got kind of a lot of feedback around the issue. But even for those of us behind the camera, we had people calling us, talking about friends they knew that had finally been able to kind of speak up because they had seen the series and felt compelled to do so and felt brave enough to do so. And and I think all kinds of abuse, you know, not just um, domestic violence, but sexual, psychological. Um, yeah, the controlling sort of, nature. Yeah, the I controlling mean, the, nature, exactly. Yeah, and I, I think that's why one of the reasons that we knew, and we talked to Nicole a lot about this, Kidman, um, before we did it, is it's really the reason that the story needed to be told over a longer format, because a movie would not have been able to give you that kind of deep investigation into the kind of nuance of those relationships. Mm -hmm. Have you ever covered a carpet stain with a rug, ignored a leaky faucet, pretended your half-painted living room is supposed to look like that? Well, you're not alone. We've all got unfinished home projects, but there's an easier way. When you download Thumbtack, it's easier to care for your home from top to bottom. Pull out your phone and in just a few taps, you can search, chat, and book highly rated pros right in your neighborhood. Plus, you'll know what to tackle next because Thumbtack is the app that shows you what to do, who to hire, and when. So say goodbye to all those unfinished home projects and say hello to caring for your home the easier way. Download Thumbtack and start a project today. Say hello to a new era of mental health care. Cerebral is here to help you achieve your mental wellness goals with professional therapy and medication management support 100% online. You'll experience the all-new Cerebral way, an innovative approach to mental wellness designed around you. You'll get a personalized treatment plan from a therapist, prescriber, or both in a safe and judgment-free space. Your Cerebral therapist or prescriber will outline a customized plan with clear milestones along the way so you can get to feeling your best. With Cerebral, you're not alone in your mental health journey. We're here to empower you to live a fulfilling life. So take that first step towards a brighter future and sign up today at Cerebral.com slash podcast and use code WONDERY to get 15% off your first month. 
Offer only valid on monthly plans. Other exclusions may apply. Offer ends July 31st, 2024. See site for details. Um, season one was directed by a man, Jean-Marc Vallée, and season two by a woman, Andrea Arnold. Did that change things in terms of the way the characters are seen, do you think? Yeah, I do think it does. I mean, I, you know, look, I've, I work with, we kind of flip-flop, we work with male and female directors um, constantly. And... Jean-Marc, you know, is also one of those rare men. And we had done, the reason I had done Wild with him previously, which was obviously a very kind of deep, complicated story about a woman. Um, So, you know, he has such a kind of deep sensitivity and, you know, love for the female story. So I do think he approached it with, in in some ways, an incredible kind of female gaze. But I do think Andrea coming on to it and also someone whose work kind of really has focused on kind of deeply investigating the deep emotion around her characters and the dramas that she's what made. What else has she done, Andrea? She did um, American Honey, Fish Tank, you know, amazing movies that really kind of look at characters kind of in deep trauma, a, a lot of her films. And, you know, she does it with a, this kind of very cinematic simplicity. And so she felt like exactly the right person, you know, because really if if uh, season one is about unearthing this kind of big mystery, season two is about the kind of corrosiveness of a lie. And really, how does that affect each of these characters? Did you always know you wanted to be a producer, Bruna? It seems to just be this natural fit for you to be assembling all these incredible moving parts and finding material and so on. I mean, you actually dropped out of university, I'm told. Mm. Did not know I wanted to be a producer. Um, I wanted to be you. I wanted to be, I wanted to be, you know, a 60 Minutes reporter. I wanted to be a magazine editor. That is really what I wanted to be. Um, And, you know, dropping out of university was a little bit of a product of, you know, kind of financial need because I grew up very working class and single mother. In South Australia. um, In South Australia. But I was bright and I did get into a very good university. But I also just wanted to be in the world from a kind of very young age. So I dropped out of two universities, actually. So, yeah, I, I, and I, then I really believe, and it's what I tell young people all the time, that you have to kind of dip your toe in the water of a lot of things to really, you know, understand what it is that you want to do. And and our day, you know, where you could just intern for free and there was no stigma around internships, you know, I just really volunteered to, you know, give myself access to anything I wanted. And... It was really when I uh, met a playwright in Australia that I realised I wanted to be in some kind of creative field. For a while I thought I was an actor, but apparently my talent did not see me all the way there. And you got your big break from Anthony Minghella and yeah. Sidney Pollack, right? Two yeah. powerhouses who are both sadly gone. How did you meet those two incredible yeah. filmmakers and you know, how did you get ended up working yeah. with them? Yeah, it's a, it's a great story, really. You know, it's my story, I think, of, of that big shift in my life is probably why I was attracted to your story in Vanity Fair, because I think I had a very similar moment. For you, it was Sign New House. For me, it was Anthony and Sydney, And I was uh, at the Toronto Film Festival with my first film, Better Than Sex, a small Australian film, and I was friends with some Irish people. And um, Anthony had directed one of Samuel Beckett's plays, along with an amazing um, roster of directors. And uh, he just said, you should come see me uh, when I'm in, when you're in London. And he had started this amazing company with Sydney Pollock. And I just laughed. I was 29. See, exactly the same. Tina, we, there's a lot, there's a lot here in common. And um, I was like, oh, don't be ridiculous. I'm not coming to London. And uh, then I found myself in London, totally coincidentally, at the London Film Festival with my film. And I went to see him. And he said, well, you should, can you read a book and give me your opinion? And suddenly I kind of realized that I was kind of in a job interview and that he had been looking for someone to run his company in London. 
And, you know, lo and behold, a day later I was on a plane to meet Sydney Pollock and four weeks later I was living in London. Wow. That's incredible. And it was, you know, that was my uh, moment. And how long did you work with them and what did you produce with those two incredible I worked with them for about five years and um, it was a funny time. It was really a huge time of development for me and where I really kind of honed my skills of, uh, you know, early book adaptation, getting early access to manuscripts um, because he had obviously at that point done The Talented Mr. Ripley, The English Patient. He was making Cold Mountain when I went to work for him. So I worked with him on that. I didn't produce it. Um, and then we developed, you know, everything from the number one ladies detective agency to other movies that he produced, um, Phil Noyce's Catch a Fire and uh, many other things. What did you learn from him that was most valuable, do you think? I, I feel like I learned everything the way the way that I you know produce today. But the, the most important thing I learned from him is, and I say this to the women that work with me all the time, is, you know, you can enable or disable creative people with your words, so be careful how you use them. And, you know, that's the thing that I think of most, whether it's, you know, the way we respond to a cut of a film, a manuscript, you know, a screenplay. Someone's put their lifeblood into it. And even if you don't respond, you have to do it, you know, with kind of dignity and care. And and the thing really I learned from Sydney is, you know, because Sydney was kind of old school Hollywood. And he was like, I return every call. Well, these things are important. I mean, they are important. Yeah. And there's a, you know, there's just a kind of, kind of respect and etiquette. And those two men never did the wrong thing by anyone. You know, if someone presented a project to them first, even if they heard about it from someone else, they would go back to the person that presented it to them, even if they ended up with too many partners, because that's who they were. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting, though, that here were these two guys who were tremendous mentors for you. And we're only hearing right now about, you know, Me Too guys in in Hollywood. But I think it's important to remember that there were people like Mingella and Pollock who actually could mentor women yes. without being invasive. Yes. No, it's totally true. That said, I, I didn't think I could work for anyone else after them. Right. Because I just, right. I thought at the time that was a little bit of an anomaly. Sure. When you moved to New York in the 90s and later to LA, did you encounter any sort of sexism um, in the movie business or was it more of a subtle thing? Because you are, you are you know, a tremendously uh, feminist yeah. in your point of view today. Yeah. I didn't so much. I mean, I I was very conscious of the boys club, you know, uh, people that felt like they all went to college together, this right. group of boys who kind of gave each other opportunities, put them on movies, you know. And I remember thinking, oh, no one's putting me on a movie. I have to basically find it myself and yeah. work for it, even when, you know, when I had kind of a lot more experience. You know, where I've really encountered it more, I feel, is a double standard in terms of, you know, what's perceived to be a female personality and a male personality. Like, I've worked with multiple female directors, and um, there's one who's so gifted. And, you know, if if you're not warm and fuzzy as a woman, people are like, oh, she's tough. She's tough. And I've worked with multiple male directors, and Every time they're like, oh, they're just an artist. They're so caught up in what they're doing. And there is a there is a real double standard yeah. in terms of what the expectation is around behavior. So I've just been experiencing that more and more. I mean, if a woman's, you know, kind of focused, they're like, oh, she's such a bitch. And if, if a man does it, he's a genius. Yes. He's an artist. And so that is that I've become very conscious of. Among the many lessons I've learned from CEOs over the years is that a company is only as good as the people who work there. So don't miss out. Live healthier, live happier by resting deeper. Order today and get 15% off any mattress for a limited time at lisa.com slash tina and use promo code tina. 
That's L-E-E-S-A dot com slash Tina. Promo code Tina. And keep in mind that you also get a 100-night risk-free trial, plus free shipping and returns. Being raised by a poor single mother mm. in, in Adelaide, did that impact on you know, your sense of self-survival and yeah. ability to get, get yourself out of where you were? Yeah. I mean, look, I think you are born with a certain temperament. And despite the fact that my mother was a single mother, you know, she was a survivor and she had a great spirit. You know, she was very spirited, as was my whole family. And I was surrounded by only aunties. You know, my mother had a lot of sisters. So I did grow up in this incredibly supportive group of women, regardless of, you know, uh, how much we struggled. It was an incredibly supportive group of women. And so from a very early age, you know, I didn't kind of take no for an answer. And I mean, if I look at where I am now and where I came from, it is, it's mind blowing to me. I mean, so much of the time I'm like, how did this happen? How did I get here? How do you escape your circumstances, you know, to find your way? How do you get access? And I always say it's kind of like you have to think of it like a superpower because the drive that you can get from being there and wanting something and understanding what it is to buy your first car, you know, and then buy your first, you know, secondhand car and then buy your first new car. You know, there's a sense of accomplishment. And if you let that accomplishment drive you, I think that really is a superpower. And I think sometimes when, you know, you grow up in too much privilege, then, you know, you don't understand those things. And, yeah. I, and I think that's sometimes harder. So in 2012, you and Reese Witherspoon formed the production company Pacific Standard. How did you get together with Reese and, um, and how did you sort of find these two great projects, Wild and Gone Girl? Yeah. So we got together. I was in the middle of making my movie Warm Bodies and I just started my own company and it was going great. So it's always when you're not looking, sometimes that things happen. And um, a friend had said to me she was looking to start a kind of female fronted production company. And um, we had met socially a few times. So I just thought, well, I'll go meet her and chat to her about it. But, you know, I'm just going to keep doing my own thing. I remember we had lunch and, um, you know, what became really clear to me is that we were both frustrated by the same things and the, you know. And what were the, was the frustration? Well, for her, I think she is, you know, as an actress had obviously read so many scripts and was so frustrated by the lack of representation and roles for women um, in it front of the, the camera. Good, they weren't the great meeting no, parts. No, it was. It was the girlfriend. I mean, it was the wife. It really, you know, there wasn't this appetite to put women front and centre. And I had, you know, always read scripts for Nicole or Naomi or, you know, all of the actresses that I knew. Isla Fisher, another good friend of mine, and even for myself as a producer. So I think we were both very passionate about kind of shifting that paradigm. But I was pretty kind of laissez-faire at the time. I was like, well, I'm shooting and, you know, send me something if you like it and we'll see if our tastes align. Because for me, it had to, whatever, you know, we were going to potentially do, it had to be a kind of business that was not just about things that she would star in. And then she sent me Wild. She'd just been sent, you know, she was the first person to be sent the manuscript for Wild and and I fell so in love with it. You know, people always ask me why I don't really use Book Scouts. And, and Wild is a great example because if I had read a synopsis for Wild on a memo, you know, it would basically say a woman hikes 1,200 miles after she, the death of her mother. And I don't think I would have read that book. Yes, yeah. But Cheryl Strait is an extraordinary talent and an extraordinary woman. And so it was all in the way she told her story. And, you know, Reese very graciously said, would you want to come and produce that with me? And that was really the beginning of the partnership. Very soon after that, um, Leslie Dixon, um, who's a wonderful screenwriter, had um, 
approach Reese with the manuscript for Gone Girl. And one of the things that Reese and I had talked about very early was just desperately trying to find, like, why doesn't why don't people make Fatal Attraction anymore? Why haven't people made Malice, you know, these female-fronted thrillers? And so obviously when you read that manuscript, you're like, well, this, this is this is a great one. So then we kind of solidified the company and, you know, had a great five years together. Mm-hmm. And then you went off and started, of course, your own company, right? Made Up Stories, uh, it's called. And the mission statement really is about putting women front and centre, yeah. right? And uh, how is that working out? Is it, are you finding the mandate frustrating ever? No. And I did expand the mandate a little bit for Made Up Stories because what I really, what was really important to me, it's not just about putting women in front of the camera. It is also putting them behind. And I say that as... If it's a female novelist, you know, I I made a movie, it's in post-production. It's actually a very male movie, Eric Bannister, isn't it? But it's by a woman called Jane Harper. It's one of the most critically acclaimed books, uh, thrillers um, of the last few years called The Dry. And I wanted to support her. She's an incredible female voice. So, you know, one of the things that made up stories that I decided when I was kind of building a company that really represented like all of my own ideals was, you know, it was going to be about putting women behind her in front of the camera. So if someone like Lisa Joy, I'm not working with Lisa Joy, I'm just obsessed with her who co-created Worst World. Uh, if she came to me and wants to tell a story, you know, with a man at the center, then why shouldn't we do that? You know, because women should be, the whole concept is that women should be able to tell any story they want behind or in front of the camera. You know, that was very important to me in the same way that we don't assume that what we're making is just for a female audience which there is an assumption. We've battled it still to this day with Wild, with Big Lies. There is an assumption that women are predominantly watching, and there shouldn't be because men don't make that assumption about their own work. No. Um, some of the stuff, the material that you're producing, I've noticed it has quite a sort of dark you know, theme. I mean, Nightingale you know, is, is really quite a violent movie. I was thinking, you know, is, is, do you have a particular attraction to that kind of dark theme? Yeah, I think I'm definitely, I think I have a pretty big palette in terms of taste. I don't predominantly steer towards light comedy, although I am incredibly interested in kind of, you know, character-driven comedy, but it has to be quite sophisticated. You know, I I, I can't see myself making sitcoms. It's just not kind of what I want to watch. So I always, you know, base my tastes on things I want to watch. Um, you know, I have made a lot of darker material. I have a series coming out next year that we made for Warner Media. Uh, it's incredibly dark, complex thriller about two women. Um, the Nightingale, I wanted to be our first movie because it represents not just one side of our company in terms of a woman um, in front of the camera, but an incredibly talented woman behind the camera. You know, there was, she so wrote, So tell us a little bit about it. that. What is it about? It's set in 1825. It's about an Irish woman who is basically a convict in this outpost in Tasmania. And she's married with a baby. And, um, you know, there's a soldier who holds the papers to her freedom, who's sexually kind of blackmailing her who, and who won't give her her freedom. And um, some, something horrific happens in the first 10 minutes of the movie and um, she spends the rest of the film going into the wilderness of Tasmania trying to, you know, seek revenge for the people that took her family from her. But it's really about a lot of the issues that we're talking about today. You know, it's about sexual violence. And power. You know? mm-hmm. Yeah. Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Bite Clear Aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Bite Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. 
Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I mean, one of the things that you have talked about with regard to sort of women getting these opportunities is this kind of cycle that if you have, you know, you have less opportunity, therefore you have less of a track record. Therefore, you're not going to have the chance taken yeah. on you because you just don't, you can't turn around and say, well, I directed this, I didn't produce this because, in fact, you don't have it on your, yeah. your resume. Yeah. Um, how do you sort of break that cycle? I mean, that's a very difficult thing. Well, I I've think heard the women cycle to break. I've, I've heard them talk about that so much. There's yeah. a lot of resentment that men very often are given breaks to do yeah. some huge action movie or whatever on the basis of very little. Yes. Whereas women, it's harder for them to get yeah. that risk taken on them. Yeah. Well, part of it is, right, it's like anything, right? It's like a, how do you embed it in your culture? So the film festivals are a great example. There's been a lot of talk, you know, in the last few years, finally, about the lack of female director representation at film festivals. Can did a terrible job last year. My director was the only female director in competition at Venice, you know, which was such a double-edged sword. It was so wonderful to be there and it's an amazing festival and we wanted to celebrate it. But the entire conversation became, she's the only female director. You don't want that for her either. No. You know, she wants to talk about her movie. She does not want to talk about being the only female director. No, it's exceedingly boring. Yeah. And I think that, and people are like, well, we choose the movies that are the best. But of course, if you have a new Coen Brothers movie or a new Mike Lee movie, they became the Coen Brothers and Mike Lee because someone, when they made their first movie, started putting them in film festivals, giving that them that kind of seal of approval. So you have to, you know push yourself to be open to some of these newer women who are making these movies. Jennifer Kent being named, I think the National Board of Review named her breakthrough director. That was significant in terms of what Hollywood came offering to her. So those kinds of call-outs, you know, that kind of exposure is tremendous. I should mention, I guess, full disclosure that you've brought the TV rights to my <laughs> memoir, right? The Vanity Fair Diaries. So uh, who you want to play me, Bruna? <laughs> I'm sitting here, and now I've got you trapped in a room. I can actually put you on the spot. (laughs) What are your plans? I mean, we have Rachel Karras Love doing the script, and I think it's terrific, I must say. It is terrific. And, you know, you you asked me before if I, you know, gravitate to things dark, and yes, I do, but one of the things I felt a desperate need to do, I have little interest in, I've been approached a lot, like, do you want to make, you know, and no offense, like, you know, a friend of mine made, um, you know, one of the Roger Ailes stories. I am desperate to see it, but it's not particularly what I want to make. Yeah, I have this thirst and hunger right now, and it's one of the reasons that I was so attracted to the Vanity Fair story to kind of also put some really inspirational stories mm-hmm. about women and what's possible on the screen. And I think young women desperately need to see that. They they need to see that you can be given the kind of creative keys to the kingdom and you can beat to the sound of your own drum. It's crucial. And it's, you know, what attracted me to, so much mm-hmm. to your story. I think we're spoiled for choice. I think there's a lot of, you know, I'd love to cast an English woman. So um, a young English woman. That would um, be so fun. Yeah, and I think it's a role that many people are going to want to play. So, yes, I'm very excited. So what else are you excited about that you've got on your development sheet? I looked at some of the titles. It's, my God, you've got, you. I mean, how many people are working at Made Up Stories and how can you develop we're, these yeah, projects? Yeah, we're a very small group, I have to say. We're only five, I think, in Los Angeles. And we have an office in Sydney and we're three women um, there. 
Um, but then we also, we have, you know, amazing women that we, whoever first looked to deal with a producer called Janice Williams, who's, um, who I've worked with multiple times and we, we're forging relationships so that when it gets too busy, that we always know that we have, you know, someone who can help us execute to the best of our ability. Um, I'm so excited about many things. We, um, I we see just, you do a quarter of Agatha Christie. Oh yes. I'm going to do, we're going to do the Miss Marple books. But you know, my um, father, as a series. Pro- do you know that my father produced Murder, she said? No. Yes. I Ms. didn't Marbles. know that. I, no, no. I grew up sitting on the knee of Margaret Rutherford. Oh my Who played Miss Marples. <laughs> who is going to play Miss Marples? It's such a fabulous I don't role. know. Meryl Streep? Oh, oh my God. God. No, who's your dream? Wouldn't it be great? So um, many of those We great are just very close to uh, hiring a, you know, a female writer. Um, we're working with the Agatha Christie uh, Limited Estate, who are an amazing group. You know, we want it to, you know, be a series that kind of goes on for a long time. And we're very well, she's, excited I mean, she's it. in a way underestimated as a breakthrough woman that she yes. was. I mean, yeah. she was really no, she was so a pioneer. Ahead. Yeah. Uh, fascinating character. Yeah. Yeah, that's um, part of what attracted me, I think. I always yeah. think when I started digging into who Agatha was, I was like, wow, she would be a woman that we would. She would see, she would be at the Women in the World conference yeah. today. Without giving anything away, will there be a season three of Big Little Lies? <laughs> <laughs> you laughed last time I asked you that, yeah. you laughed like a hyena, <laughs> and then you actually did. I didn't think there was going to be a season two. Um, never say never, right? I mean, I, I'm just, I really, I just want to enjoy, you know, we're launching tonight. I just want to enjoy the, you know, hope. I really hope that the reaction is strong from season two. I'm incredibly proud of it. And, um, you know, yeah, never say never. So, Bruna Papandrea, huge good luck with season two. Oh, thank you. And I just can't wait to see what happens with Mel Streep. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, Tina. You've been listening to TBD with me, Tina Brown, brought to you by Wondery. You can subscribe to TBD on Apple Podcasts, Follow us on Spotify or keep up with us however you listen to podcasts. TBD is produced by Tina Brown, Kathleen Russo, Julie Subrin, Karen Compton and Michael Solomon. Original theme music is composed by Forrest Gray. And to hear news about more smart, wonderful women, subscribe to the Women in the World bi-weekly newsletter at womeninTheworld.com. Come back next time for more smart people on TBD. TBD.